This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Showcase Sundays today on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated G for general audiences. And with the lovely music of Sharon B., we're back with Mutual Presents. I'm Jack Ward for the Mutual Audio Network. We continue our series with audio replays from this past summer MadCon 2021 events. This week on our third outing, I host Story Structure with panelists Steve Schneider, Tony Serechia, Neil Jones, and Robert Arnold. You can find all videos on the Mutual Audio Network channel. Now let's get the show going. Welcome back, folks. My name is Jack Ward. You're listening and watching the uh, Modern Audio Drama Convention, the Live 2021 here. Uh, I've been jumping in as a uh, quick host for this particular session. If you're expected to see David Alt, I am not him, uh, neither in talent nor in form. But we are here in story structure, uh, which is still one of my absolute favorite things to talk about. And I am so gratefully uh, with some fantastic story smiths all together. So out of with no particular order, I'll start off with if they could uh, introduce themselves briefly and let people know who you are. Let's start with Tony Serechia. Hello, I am Tony Serechia. I'm the creator of the Harry Strange radio drama, the Lady Sherlock Mysteries and Scarlet Hood the Continuing Adventures of Little Riding Hood, um, which is a ridiculously long title. So those are um, the three main projects I've been working on. I've been in audio drama for 10 years. 10 years ago, Harry Strange dropped for the first time. Um, I've also written regular prose stories, mostly short stories. Um, I have a pilot out that's being shopped uh, for television, and that's kind of where I am. Very cool. What's the name of the pilot, just for people's interest? It's right now, it's Nick Colton, Private cool. Eye. Love it, love it, very good. So going on my, on my uh, uh, clock, clockwise, going upwards, I see Neil Jones. Neil, tell us about yourself. Uh, hello, um, my name's Neil Jones. I am the writer, producer, director, sound designer, jack of all trades for uh, Radio Project X. And Radio Project X is a collective that does uh, audio adaptations of uh, public domain stories plus original stuff, original sketch comedy, original dramas, uh, performed as a live radio show and then recorded and then put them put up online. I also, I'm also teaching during this uh, convention. Uh, I'm also teaching a workshop called Improv Your Writing. So if you're interested in signing up for that on today, later today at 4 p.m., 4.30 p.m. or tomorrow at 4.30 p.m., you can go to improvyourwriting.com. And I want to say exclusively free here 
with this convention only. So please sign up. It's a fantastic opportunity. And then we have Steve Schneider down at the bottom there. Steve, how you doing? Doing great, Jack. Uh, so yeah, I'm Steve. I first stumbled across modern audio drama about 11 years ago, running across sites like uh, Sonic Society. Um, so I couldn't just stay a fan for very long. So after uh, being a pure fan of, of the medium, I had to jump in and uh, try my hand at creating this stuff. Uh, a lot of experience with writing. Um, but uh, just started to get into writing specifically for audio drama <clears throat> six or seven years ago with some one-offs. And I'm currently working on a kid's show called Wordtastic Kid Agents. It's a spy-themed kid's show that also promotes vocabulary development. And it's an audio drama. It's a lot of fun, too. And I, I first uh, heard of Steve through the audio drama production podcast where he was doing some interesting discussions about this very topic and i was just fascinated so it was great and finally but not least in any way shape or form is my friend robert arnold from chatterbox theater and now spoken signal and i already told him what you do but i just love what you do rob you want to tell you want to tell people a little more about it absolutely hey jack hey everybody um it's great to see all of you guys uh despite how it appears i'm not calling in from the old west I don't know why I'm getting this like sepia toned thing going on today. It must be overcast in a certain way. I'm calling from Memphis, Tennessee, um, where I have been producing audio drama since 2007, originally under the banner of Chatterbox Audio Theater. And Chatterbox was a, a, a full 501c3 nonprofit organization. And man, when we started, there was Jack Ward out there, there was Fred Greenhalge, a few others, and it's been just so fantastic to see the explosion in this medium. So I retired Chatterbox in 2017 and then uh, got antsy and missed it. Um, and so just this past year, I've launched a new venture called Spoken Signal Audio Drama that focuses more on my own original stuff, um, whereas Chatterbox was more like literary adaptations and existing stories. So I'm excited to be here with all of you. Well, thank you so much. And we're excited to have all of you here. So the, the discussion is about the story uh, structure and how we put it together. And one of the first points that I wanted to bring up, and I, I created all these bullet points as just jump off spots, but I, there are people like John Bell, Kai and Chris Conroy, and some others that completely improv their scripts. I don't know how that's possible, but they do that. I'm a writer. I, I, I have to work from my page. And then there are people who do, like myself, full scripts and develop them out. And then there's ways of being able, at times, when you're working with live actors, to be able to work with both or to have people do stuff. What's the values? What do you prefer? Is there a real value in doing improv scripts versus full text scripts? I'd like to whip around the the group and 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 ask that question bob i know you guys did a bunch of we'll start with you you guys did a bunch of uh sketches as well like comedy sketches and a variety of things how much of that is improv how much of that was full script and what did you prefer i've mostly worked in full scripts jack um i actually did improv in college i enjoy improv it's fun but doing that in audio would terrify me i think um so i 
we did, we had some sketch comedy uh, with Chatterbox, but the improv there all came in the writing of it, right? We'd sit around as a group and riff and stuff like that. But when it came time to, to put it down on paper, I wanted it down on paper. So I am very much of the school of writing things out. I am very much in awe of the people who can do a, a, an improv story and have it be good and have it come across well and, and be effective. So hope maybe I can pick up some pointers here today. Well, if we're going to talk improv, your writing, which is the, like the title of, of Neil's <laughs> workshop, I, I'd be remiss not to ask him how much of what you think should be on the page should be stuff that comes from Im, improvis, improvisational use of the writing format, or, or how much of it would you think is not? Well, uh, what our workshop focuses on is using improv to generate writing. It's not about uh, improv um, performance-wise. So what we do is we take theatrical improv techniques and we use it, you can use it with yourself when you're writing, you know, how to, how to break down character, how to find out what's next in your story. Um, with Radio Project X, we uh, work from scripts, we work from full scripts, um, but we workshop them as we go and a lot of improv gets added by the actors here and there. And because we record it live, often there'll be even more improv thrown in unbeknownst to me. But, you know, I trust the actors and it's usually it's usually pretty good. So. Great. And Steve, but, I know. Sorry. Did you have something? To add yeah, to but we, we don't we don't develop sketches from improv in the traditional sense where you, you just brainstorm and then somebody writes it all out. Like we start right. with the script. I know, Steve, you've you've been talking about how in studio you've had to make changes to to try to create more realistic dialogue at the time sometimes people improving their lines a little more do you find that that can be a problem with the, the scripts that you've developed or uh i don't think it's a problem as long as the uh, the general purpose of the scene or scenes is achieved um i kind of look at the whole writing process and that kind of bleeds into the recording itself is being an evolving creative endeavor. And that starts with your basic big global ideas or whatever starts the story. It could be something large, it could be something small, it could be a character, it could be a theme. And just through negotiating with those ideas and, and tracking them all the way up to the scripting and the writing of the dialogue and working with the actors to express the dialogue, it's all, <clears throat> It's all uh, kind of up for grabs, uh, and, and nothing's really like set in stone. I don't, I don't look at uh, really any aspect of the writing process as being done. You're just kind of finished with it after. So what's the, what's the saying? You just uh, abandon it. Abandon, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stories are never quite finished; they're only abandoned at a certain point. And right. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, good, uh, Tony. Uh, and I can speak about Harry Strange because I've listened to it a couple of times most recently when the replays in the Mutual Audio Network. Thank you so much. I your a lot of your stuff. It's interesting because you take sort of high dialogue of sort of mythic characters, but you also ground it into the everyday sort of vernacular and sometimes with using colorful language. How much <laughs> of that comes from like the actors sort of reworking your dialogue and how much of is it straight? the dialogue on the page? It's a pretty good mix. Um, when I started, I really didn't know anything about like voice. I didn't know anything about 
uh, voice actors and where to find them. So I just went to our local um, SAG places, uh, Screen Actors Guild and local acting booking agencies. And I sent out a casting call and said, here's what I'm doing. If you're interested, let me know. Now, I'm lucky that I'm in Atlanta. So we have a pretty healthy um, uh, pool of actors to pull from. And what I would tell the actors, because this was back in the before times when we could all sit around a conference room and you know, go through the scripts and table read the scripts. And I used to tell them, if you guys feel, because some of these guys are just really funny. I was like, if you guys feel like you want to say something, you know, change the line around, go for it. I said, but there's going to be lines that you can't change because there is the mythic, you know, there is that story that we're telling over 16 episodes. So that line, you know, these lines can't be changed. But, you know, if you want to, if you think there's a better way to say this, feel free to. Right. Because, I mean, we had I had television actors coming in. I had folks, you know, that were on, you know, the, I mean, they weren't leading roles, but they were in pretty, pretty powerful uh, or they were in, in pretty big shows, although their role may have been small, but they were all very creative folks. So I didn't want to stifle that, except when I had to, um, you know, the Harry Strange scripts were always um, they were always the guideline. Um, so we would change. Things. I mean, sometimes we would change things as we were recording them. Um, and then sometimes in the final edits, when I'm sitting with the producer, we would change lines even then, you know, if we had the material to do it. Um, so everything was in flux until we abandoned it at the final cut, right? When we said, you know what, this has to go out tomorrow. So we probably need to stop tinking, tinking around with it and let it go. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of letting kind of, you know, the actors do, I mean, if, if there was actors who weren't weren't perhaps as witty as they thought they were eventually i would i would guide them back to the script and this is kind of where we, you need to stay for this character's arc um, but that was you know that was kind of the, the whole it's always a workshop i think that's a good place to put it it's always a workshop i find for myself that i i encourage the same thing as long as it doesn't change the nature of the character right or it doesn't in some way cause a problem with the plot you know what i mean those right. two things are right. sort of unmovable right but if right. you're adding something that will add quirks to the character or or punch lines or fun things or just more realistic sounding dialogue go for it like mm -hmm. why the whole point is to make the story better and i think we all agree upon that that's what you're looking for in the end so right. all things serve the story perfectly said all things serve the story which brings the next question that i have which is which do you recommend for people to start off with? Is it a good idea? Here's the options. Is it a good idea to start off with just a single one-shot audio drama? Or is it a good idea to, to really start focusing on a series, as small or as large as it might be? Because if you want to do audio drama nowadays, most people, they come up with their own feed. There's expectations about how much material you're going to put out. Uh, do you think people are more interested in series or are they more interested in anthology series? These are questions that, that constantly haunt me. So I want to know what you guys all think. Who wants to hit it first? Well, I think the reason we chose the anthology format is because we wanted to do both comedy and drama and because we're, we're all very interested in a lot of different styles of theater and styles of performance. And so that kind of informed what we do. And because we do it live, like we're not that concerned about getting downloads. You know, it's more for the live audience who comes to see us. That's what feeds us. 
So yeah, it's been it's been good. And then we really like when we do adaptations, we release those separately. So we've done a couple of Philip K. Dick stories. We've done a authorized uh, um, story by. Um, Ah, come back to me. The name escapes me. Famous, famous, <laughs> famous author. Sure, sure. Uh, and we got the we got we got permission to adapt one of his stories. And his daughter, <clears throat> who runs who runs his estate, really liked it. She came and she spoke about her dad. I wish I could remember who the author is. Sorry. No problem. You're out of Toronto, Neil. For those people who that, that's are, right, are that's just right. tuning in with us, yeah. Where where do you do your live shows? Uh, usually at the the Social Capital Theater in Toronto. Nice. It's a okay. it's a it's a comedy bar. It's a comedy venue, improv kind of workshop mm. place. So. That's great. Who who else wants to t tackle this particular conundrum? Bob, oh, you've done everything. Sorry, uh, Theodore Sturgeon was the author. Sorry. Oh, I love Theodore Sturgeon. So. I have to go back and find that show. <laughs> sorry, Tony, you were going to say something? Yeah, uh, yeah, I was gonna say just from my own experience, um, I sat down with, I had been listening to um, Byron Chronicles and, um, oh my gosh, just um, Red Red Panda and like these really long, you know, season long, years long story arcs when I started Harry Strange. So of course, I started out with those same grandiose plans um, with Harry Strange, and it eventually worked out, but it almost didn't because. And, and I guess the point I'm making is I recommend someone start out with something small, like maybe an hour long script that you split into three episodes or two episodes, because for me, the, the, the writing was fun. The audio, you know, recording the actors was fun. Casting was great. But when it came down to actually do the soundscape, God, I wanted to just drive, you know, tire irons into my eyes because that was the most painful process. Now we didn't, it was painful because we didn't have a process in place, right? We just kind of sat in, started recording. And then, you know, later on, we'd have to find all the good lines and, and put them in there. So that, you know, we recorded over the summer and come October, I still had nothing in place because it was so painful. So someone who's wanting to, eventually I, I brought in a producer and, and she did, you know, all the, the, that, that part. Um, but someone who wants to do this and is thinking about, wow, I want to write a 16 season, a 16 episode season. I would say do one, do one episode, right? Cause you can break that up into 40, you know, 30 minutes. However, you, you can still get three episodes out of one hour long episode, but see if it's really what you want to do. Right. When you think about all of the work that's involved, cause it's, you're not just a writer. You're the, in most cases, you're the producer, you're the director, you're the sound design, you're the marketing person, you know, you're the the accountant, you're, you do all of that stuff. So, you know, we're talking about story structure, but the question I think really begs the whole, the structure of the audio drama itself. And I find not, nothing keeps actors interested more than you know, having them see something get finished. You know what I right. mean? Right. Like yeah. if you say you're an actor, do you want to commit to 16 episodes? They're like, oh, I don't know. Well, you do right. you do the first few, like you said, and and, and the, you know, and it's successful, then they'll be interested in, in exactly. In, yep, yep. Steve, you were having some struggles with uh, doing wordtastic at times with actors, but your actors were much more unique than many others. You want to talk about that at all? Uh, you mean in working with kids? That's right. Oh boy, yeah. Um, well, I agree with uh, what Tony was saying about the starting off with uh, something self-contained and shorter uh, because most of the people that get interested in audio drama really don't have any clear idea of just the crushing workload on all fronts. <laughs> Everything takes forever. The writing takes forever. <laughs> Even finding the right actors takes forever. 
the recording part is the shortest among the phases, but uh, it it still takes a lot of work. I was just re-recording two of the uh, lead roles, and this is a series uh, that I'm making. Uh, but calculated something like 54 hours of just directing two out of the six main actors in the show. Now I could just hope that they could record something on their own and send it to me, but most likely I'm going to get something that I'm not happy with. So I'm right there on Zoom, just like this. They're recording on their end. I'm kind of directing them through the takes, a few different takes of each one in case the dog barks or somebody's mowing the lawn or whatever. And uh, that's 54 hours in a very small part of the overall process. It's been thousands of hours that I've put into this project and I'm not even doing it all myself. I'm just doing the writing and directing. Austin Beach is working with me. He's doing all the, the voice cuts and and laying down part of the sound design and Dane Leonardson's finishing the sound design and composing and mixing and mastering the whole thing. I couldn't imagine just doing it all myself. I'm already spending thousands, thousands of hours on this stuff. So, I mean, people should understand that if you're doing even a one hour audio drama, depending on the level of production and what style you want to do. Um, as I recall, like, uh, I believe Chatterbox Audio Theater did more of like a kind of a retro old time radio style where you were using even the, uh, some of the implements and the, the fun things that the sound effects artist would use. And that's fine. And I'm, I don't know, I'd be interested to hear from Bob as far as like how that would compare to like more of a cinematic style, which is probably more along the lines of what I'm doing, but I don't have any experience of working with that particular style. But bottom line is no matter what style you, you work in, everything takes forever. And that's a long period of time. And that's a long time you have to be in a relationship with cast members, like years and years. So you're going to be sure that four or five years from now, that person's still going to be interested in your project, especially if you're not able to pay them much or anything at all. I mean, there's all kinds of considerations that you have to think about when you're starting with something like that. I just think it's, there's too many people that start it, realize, oh my God, this is way more than I thought it was going to be. And then they quit. Or become audiobook podcasters. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> that wasn't a dig. That's just a recognition that some people find it too much and they can record it on their own for that particular reason, too. So um, that's no. Thank you for bringing it up. And Bob, you did like he's mentioned that you've done sort of old time. Now I'm 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 accessing my my list of four sources, old time radio stage and uh, cinematic and then this YouTube confessional style, which you see in modern day more often. I think Bob's shows have done all of them. I, I would count surface, is it surface or surfacing? surfacing as, yeah. as, as very much a cinematic modern style audio drama. And what I found fascinating is some of the videos, I don't know if they're still available on YouTube, but I've used them in my classroom that you guys have had video examples of them doing live studio stuff because you really enjoyed the the energy of the live studio, including sound effects and music in that. Can you speak to the variety of long versus series versus short? Cause you've done all that stuff. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, so yes, with Chatterbox, we were working with kind of an old time radio production model. The content was contemporary, but we would try as much as possible to get all the actors 
in the room at the same time, all the sound effects as much as possible, even the musician when we could to record on cue, choreograph everybody running around. So what that what I think that did, Steve, is is that put the work on more on the front end. Um, it still took forever. <laughs> it still took forever. And, and I was lucky there because I wasn't uh, producing all of those uh, and doing all the post-production for those. I had I had great collaborators doing a lot of that. But what that means is you need more time for rehearsal, right? You need more time to get people from this microphone to this microphone. You need to test all the sound effects to make sure they work. Um, and then you put all that together. So with, with Spoken Signal, with my new, this new venture, um, it is more cinematic. It is more piece by piece. And we're, we're sort of tweaking, I'm tweaking everything just like I like it. Um, both are fun, but you are right. Both just take forever. So I'm going to echo everybody else here and say, you know, if you can make yourself start small, start small. I, I think a lot of people come into this and go, yes, I want to create this 30 episode arc. And I love those, right? They're great. I love those. But before you do that, do 10 minutes of something, do the first episode, do a scene. Um, when I switched over to Spoken Signal this year, we recorded a six minute scene because we were in a new studio. I was doing all the production work myself. I started with a six minute scene. It's the first thing on our feed. That was after 10 years of creating audio drama, but I just had to get my sea legs there and make sure I was doing it right before I jumped into something longer. So I think the people who want to do these big epic things, you're gonna do it. Um, but if you can make yourself start with something smaller and, and manageable and finish it, do that first. And you'll feel so much better if you finish it, right? If you if once you've completed it, it's like this is a win. I've done I've done an episode. Okay, I can do 15 more now. You know, maybe not, but right, at least you you have that win under your belt. Yeah, I, the, the old story of a writer writes, it's more like a writer finishes, you know, you need to be able to make sure that you have that sense because everybody can start something, but it's getting it done, getting it down right. and being able to be going. I, I don't want to get too far into the post-production side of things, but as a writer, these are elements that you have to consider, of course, when you're talking about resources and what you want. So uh, I had this this phrase I used early days because we were talking about cinematographic and I didn't want to know how to put it. So I, I put it as sort of like the 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 um, the simple version or the minimalist version of audio drama with very few sound effects and just stealing stick strictly with the story versus the every blade of grass far side of the end where you hear all things going on you know sound and if you listen carefully there's six different layers of you can hear the the swings in the distance of the of the neighbor's property and all that kind of stuff can any i want to speak to the benefits and the deficits of both of those things because we can get in love with our soundscape and we can get in love with just the story itself but everything, in my opinion, has to serve the story uh, because if you put too much in, you're distracting people from the story. And if you're putting too little in, you're not painting the picture for the story. As from the writer's perspective, what are those functions that you guys think about when you're talking about putting together a story that can be used later on for post-production? We'll start with Bob since we've we ended with him last time. Sure. So Jack, what immediately comes to mind is when I'm writing, when I'm putting it down in the script, I'm going to put as few sound cues as necessary to set the scene, right? I'm not going to say, 
it's a street scene and we hear cars and we hear a plane going overhead and we hear what I'm going to say street scene and go from there. And then as a producer, that's when you can start, you know, if you, if you are producing it or someone else is producing it, that's their problem to figure out what all that means. But I think, um, and this may come from, from doing that old time radio style, but I think I learned to, you know, start small and then embellish as necessary. But the truth is you're, you're only going to be able to focus on a certain number of things. So if I can, if I've got the dialogue going, but I've also got a, you know, full circus going in the background and you've placed every single clown and tumbler and their voices and what they're doing, it's just going to be distracting. So I think for me, I like starting with that focus and then embellishing as necessary. Okay, cool. Tony, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think that, I don't know if this is still true, but there was a, there was a thought going around for a while that, well, audio is just like film, right? So if you would do this in film, then you should replace it with audio. And I don't think that's accurate. Like you said, you know, I can show a scene from the Godfather with oranges and, and all these other things that don't distract from the story that's being told, right? That doesn't distract from the dialogue. It, it enhances the dialogue. I can't do that in audio. First off, we don't all know if I play the sound of an orange hitting the floor, we're all going to have a different interpretation of what that, what that is, right? Because we don't have a common audio or auditory language. We have a common visual language. Um, and I think that plays huge into this. So, so like Bob, I'm writing street scene. And then later, if when we're playing it back, it sounds weak, right? The background sounds weak. Then we're going to add that plane flying in overhead or whatever. But I, the, again, the, to me, and this is in every medium, dialogue tells the story, right? So that's where the my focus is when I write is in dialogue. Sometimes I over, you know, I overwrite, which, uh, you know, if I, when I go back to listen to season one of Harry Strange, there's so much I would cut now, but that was 10 years ago, right? So we, we live and learn. Um, but that, that's my thing. It's, it's a very minimalist approach to the sound design. If I can add a quick little story, I um, one of my shows was a superhero show um, called Blue Defender. And one of my, my uh, one of the listeners said, could I make this into an animation? Just take the audio and make it an animation. I went, go for it, right? The whole bit. And he did a great job, but it was so slow because I went, well, of course it's so slow because when you're watching visual, you, most of the dialogue's right. cut, right? So 90% right. of what I would have written, I would have had to cut out in the future. But it was so instructive to see that happen because it is such a different medium in that way. Neil, when you're doing live shows, do you mm -hmm. find that the, um, the sound effects are, are there as simply as a character point? Or do you utilize a lot of atmospheric elements in, in there to try to tell the story? uh we kind of unless we're doing a dramatic thing we kind of keep it to a minimum with sound effects we we have a score we have somebody who scores the the show for us uh but we keep it to a minimum of sound effects but then once we have the live recording we record it in such a way that that everything's on different channels so when we mix it for example, the Theodore Sturgeon thing, we went back and just added all new sound effects that weren't there during the live show. Because the live show, they have the actors, uh, you know, faces to see, they have a lot to watch. So if you overload it with sound effects on the live show, it's going to be too distracting. 
but when we when we when we sit down to make a mix we can add more stuff and we can add some background uh, sound effects we can add some you know when you get the levels right you know it's harder to get the levels right when you're doing it live so so it's kind of a hybrid uh, process for us fantastic and steve what about you how do you um, feel about the sound effects and the use of it yeah so uh my perspective has changed over the years with regard to this. Um, well, first of all, regarding the formatting, I typically write in a, a version of screenplay format, which is different from like an old time radio format, which was meant to be performed live. So you'd have dialogue, sound effects, dialogue, sound effects, dialogue, sound effects. Um, I think that producers who are using sound effects primarily as an accompaniment or a garnish on the dialogue are missing an opportunity to storytell through the sound effects. For example, a character walks into a room, opens the door, closes the door, walks across the room, picks up a knife and begins chopping veggies. Uh, okay. So that communicates some movement that communicates what's happening in the scene. It's not necessary because most people know what a door and footsteps sound like and, and a chopping knife and a cutting board. Those are common enough sounds that people would be familiar with them. Mm. But I'm also thinking of, well, what's that character's state of mind? Did they slam the door? Did they rush? Were they hurried? Were they distracted? What's going on internally with that character? And to what extent can those sound effects kind of reflect the internal state of that character? In other words, using sound effects to characterize similar to the way a writer would write descriptive dialogue or de description. Uh, so in audio drama, sound effects pretty much take the place of description. So I'm always thinking of how to communicate that in a script to my guys so that I'm not just writing uh, as little as possible. It depends on the, on the everything's got to serve the story like you said already. So Sometimes I'll communicate things in action lines that are not even directly heard, but more reflect the mood or the tone of a scene because I'm trying to communicate my vision of how I'm imagining the scene to uh, the guys that are going to be doing the sound effects and even the music. And they've expressed to me that sometimes it is helpful for them for me to just be more evocative in my writing to give them a sense of, oh, he starts hearing like, well, maybe what music can communicate this. There's any number of any number of uh, tones and shades that can be communicated, but it's just a matter of, of trying to trying to set down enough in the script to give whoever you're collaborating with, if you're collaborating with somebody. Um, a sense of of your vision of it that's not what it's going to end up finally being because the story in my head and the story that people eventually hear are never the same thing but at least it's a starting point so you're hopefully close enough to being on the same page that uh you know, you're co-creating a story with your collaborators including the actors excellent i i agree completely i um it, it, it brings up the question, which was the next one in line, which is like, what kind of format do you want to use? So you enjoy using the screenplay format, Steve. For me, I find it more difficult for my actors to, to read it because it all goes down the center of the page. 
So when I a lot of my actors who are you know will read it out loud. So the the older style format at least is is left justified so it, they don't lose a line in the same way. But that's that's the style that I operate by. What kind of formats do you guys use? Uh, let's start with Neil. What are you using? Uh, I have a modified version of the BBC radio script format. Okay. The only, the only thing I tweaked was just that it automatically numbers each line of dialogue. So if we're rehearsing, it's easy to say, okay, let's pick it up from like line 35, for example. Um, yeah, I find that very uh, useful and it works out to about a minute a page, same as screenplay format, just because of the, the font and the size of font we've chosen. and. The way I write, I tend not to write chunky descriptions. I tend not to write parenthetical instructions to the actors. So it works out to about a minute of dial, a minute of show per page. So. Do you use specific software for that, or? Yeah, no, I just build template. I just build style sheets in Word. Okay, so. perfect. And Steve, yeah. are you using a Word as well, or are you using a different software? Uh, I use Final Draft, or sure. um, mainly just because it does all the all the yeah. formatting for you. Although it's, it looks different than what you would uh, see in a screenplay, uh, you'll tend to see more, more action lines in, uh, in my scripts. Part of it is because I'm also directing. I don't feel like I'm stepping on the director's toes by putting direction into the script because it's the same guy. Mm -hmm. I would probably operate differently if there was somebody else directing it because that is kind of getting more into directing from the page, which I know for experienced directors and, and, and even actors that tends to annoy them. But also I'm working with kids who don't have a lot of experience in acting. And so it is more helpful for them to kind of get more of an idea of what they should be doing or how they should be reading a line that probably a more experienced actor would find off-putting or a little bit too, uh, too mm -hmm. commanding or whatever. But just for example, I, uh, I put in uh, for sound effects that are an ongoing sound that is continuous throughout a scene or part of a scene, such as a running car engine or an overhead fan. I'll put the noun in all capitals in the midst of my description or in my action. If it's an incidental sound like a door opening and closing or somebody hitting something, then I'll, I'll capitalize the verb. So that's generally how that's I've done it. So you'll see a lot of capitalized words. And that's just <clears throat> clue clue my guys off as far as the suggestion, as far as what I'm hearing as I'm imagining the scene. But I make it clear to them, this is descriptive. It's not prescriptive. This isn't like Steve's commandments of what thou shalt put in there. <laughs> it's, just, it's just a starting point for them to kind of mesh their own creativity with mine and complete the scene however their vision and best informs the scene, this best they can tell. That's awesome. I, I love that. By the way, I, I just have a second Star Trek reference this morning already. I remember reading, I think it was the book Strangers in the Sky, and they had like a circus troupe on the Enterprise, and the person complained, children and, and Vulcans never perform for children and Vulcans. <laughs> so there's there's a lot of, and I, what I mean by that in your case is, there, I'm sure there is a lot of direction involved with kids, uh, tone and and how to approach it and, and, and volume and all that kind of stuff. And that, yeah. of course, we'll spend a lot more time with on tomorrow's stuff when we talk about acting and recording. Uh, Tony, what about the format on your side? How did you format your shows? So we went from basically the format you developed in Caltex years ago um, to I use now, um, it's a modified screenplay format so that 
it's not just calling for the sound like bill you know harry opens the door it's harry walks through the door and slams his fist on the table so it's it's far more visual that way and i find that the actors seem to respond better than you know you know fx door opens fx slam on table right, right. so i i mean th- that just worked for me um again maybe because so many of them are coming from tv or or, or stage um, so I found that one works better. The audio, the um, sound designer loved it as well. Cause I thought he was going to be the guy who gave me the pushback on why are all these words in here? Um, but he, he actually, it's, he said it helped him with its flow. So I have two templates um, that I use um, in final or one in final draft. I have a producer, <clears throat> the, the company who's producing um, Scarlet Hood is writer duet exclusive. So I, I have writer, a, a writer duet template that I use for them, but the pro, but the, the, the script looks the same as well. Excellent. And, and Bob, what have you used in the past and what do you use now to the same thing? Yeah, I have a, I, I use a modified version of whatever I found online in 2007 when I was Googling how to write this stuff. Um, but it has, it has worked well and I've kind of stuck with it. It's, it's, uh, friendly to the actors, it's friendly to read on the page. So it's courier font, it's bold, um, sound effects are underlined so no one says them. Um, it's, you know, courier is a monospaced font so all the letters are the same width so you don't have weird ragged margins or anything like that left justified. Um, I, you know, I put all that together in Word, I hate it, but I've never branched out to a different software or anything like that uh, to try it. So, so I number the cues, by the way, I number the cues rather than the individual lines. It's just, again, how the script was. So it can be like page 22, line four, let's start there. So that's just the last thing I do. Once the script is done, I go number all the cues. Cool. So uh, since Tony uh, brought it up, I just want to let people know Celtic, C-E-L-T-X, is a software that years ago I wanted something that was free that we could use in a community and one of our listeners said well Celtics is developing this I found out they were out of Newfoundland I approached them they didn't have an audio drama component they said well give us the specs so I I reached for my books and and pulled the script writing from J. Michael Straczynski and he had the modern sort of version of audio drama and I used those as the standards for Celtics and they could print it off into the BBC version as well. Um, Celtics has since gone fully online and I don't do that. I I like to work in in absentia of, of, of internet sometimes. So I don't wanna necessarily be working always off the cloud. So I still use their old Celtics version. I also created my own template for final draft and I've been playing using uh, things just, if I'm gonna share something with somebody on the reg- regular basis, I might just do something in, in Google Docs just for fun to try to do that. But also part of my problem is that I, I try to be inventive in, in ways and I would love to create a new software that does all these things and one of the things I would like to see in a new script writing software is, I think, why not have various different filters so that you can turn them on and off? So you could have a really comprehensive script that includes everything a post-production person wants, everything that a director wants, everything that a casting director wants, everything that the actor wants, and yet you can check them all off and and make them as small as possible so that I could print off a script with only the dialogue. I could print off a script just for the post-production person. 
so that they have what they need and nothing more. Or we can have a really detailed, full length script. The other element that I really desperately want to see, and again, if I was a if I was a, a developer, I would have this already, is I, I like the idea, you know, in, in movies, we have the cameras focus, right? And I, I, we, we talk about the like the microphones focus, but it's not quite that. It's more like the mind's eye focus of what's going on in a scene. Because you can have a scene focused on one character. You can have a scene pulled back on, three, you know, all those different elements. So I wanted to have a, a program where I could have just, you know, a bunch of squares on either side and just drop in little icons so that scene is built... Physically or visually, for my post-production person, and I put, might put a little microphone at where I think everything should be centering from, so that they can go, oh, well, this is this big, and this room is this big, and it'd be very simple to just throw on little icons, so that you get like five people around this way. Oh, so this person's over here. Got it. So it's a visual way of your post-producer being able to understand, like you, this stuff you have in long-term conversations with people. But imagine if that was attached to your script that you could just put that in, print it off as a bitmap or something like that for people to utilize. I think it would really move things forward quickly. So if there are any developers listening, come talk to me. Let's make million it. Million dollar idea, Jack. You shouldn't be giving it away. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Steve, you had your finger up there. You had yeah, I, I, uh, you're speaking my language now because this is one of the things that I am currently wrestling with and I don't have a good answer for because I, um, in the show wordtastic i use a lot of playing around with uh the sound point of view which is what you were talking about where's the microphone or the camera uh mm -hmm. within any given scene and that can have huge storytelling implications depending on how how it's negotiated for example uh you know maybe there's four characters in a room but two are talking on one side two are talking on the other side and one of them has a secret that he doesn't doesn't want the other ones to know about and is kind of kind of talking quietly not really wanting to be overheard. And then you can actually switch to the sound point of view across the room and kind of hear what they're hearing from their side. And there, there's so many different ways that you can exploit that dynamic of moving the sound point of view from one character to another, one place to another. And it adds a lot of flexibility in terms of in terms of what kind of story you could tell or what the story is. Um, we even have a scene where a character sends up a drone into the sky, moves it to the other side of an island, and then it drops down and it joins the other characters. A little bit more nifty than just a hard cut from one side of the island to the other, where you actually follow the drone up into the air. You hear a battle going on from down below, and now you're on the other side of the island with uh, two completely different characters. Uh, so there's all kinds of nifty things you could do, but I don't have a great way to communicate the where the sound point of view is in any given script. That would be great to have something of what you said. Like, I, I don't think that there's a real, uh, at least I don't know of, a, a real audio equivalent to what like storyboarding would be in, in the movie industry. Where you can actually see, like you were talking about, even like diagramming the scene. All right, he's here, she's here, he's over here. And communicating that to your, to your collaborators in a way that everyone understands how we're hearing the scene. Could that, you do that in your like in your action line? Like we follow yeah. the drone up, up, and up, and then across the island. I mean, that almost kind of tells your your sound designer 
you know, that, I, I mean, I would think the sound designer would say, well, as the drone goes up, the ground sounds go down. Right. I mean, that's. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, we, I'll, I'll, I'll float the idea to them. If I get a crazy idea like that, I'll say, right. <laughs> is this going to work? Is this going to fly? And again, it gets back to story too. Otherwise it's just basically the equivalent of a bass solo where it's just just showing off for the sake of showing off. But if there's a real like story based reason to do something like that, it could be, it could be pretty powerful if you pull it off correctly. I'm very interested in transitioning from one scene to another and how you get there because there's a lot of different. That's what I was going to say. I really like the way of having inventive transitions because we're so used to the very simple musical transition or fading out or fading back in if you have a way that bases in the story it really helps neil i'm curious how you you utilize that those kind of things on a live presentation do you not concern yourself with it do you let it go through the story or how, how does that oh, no, oh no we, we're pretty concerned with transitions between scenes uh, often the longer bits will have you know two or some of the short comedy stuff is just one location but for the longer scenes, we definitely have transitions built in. Uh, often musical, we have a really fantastic composer. Um, and I was meaning oh, specifically the, about focus of the camera, though. Like, the oh yeah, of, yeah. How we, you set the setting, right? The scene. Yeah, we <laughs> sort of we sort of play to the visual aspect for the audience. Like we are very specific about who's on what mic, you know, so how it looks on stage. When we when we mix it, it's not such a big deal because all the mics are recorded separately, so we can mix and match. Do you cue lights? <clears throat> excuse me, cue lights for various mics as well to help provide that. It's not that sophisticated. We have a lights up, lights down between <clears throat> scenes, and and sometimes fills if it's like so you know set on Mars or something, we have a red fill or something. But nice. But no no up no spotlights no up and downs no. Okay. But but we'll often have the actors uh, you know move to the back of the stage, and only the performing actors are in front of the mics. So that right. gives a focus right away. So. In my format, I'll use the term production notes for anything that describes something that the post producer mm -hmm. should know. And I'll put that sort of at the beginning of scenes or if there's massive changes in the in the focus, I'll, I'll there's a production note sort of element that comes in Celtics and, and Tony knows mm -hmm. what I'm talking about. And then when it comes to um, uh, cueing the the actor with specific stuff i'll put that like within the dialogue so i'll there's a I'll, there's a little element that you can go under dialogue i forget what it's called do you remember what it's called and yet it comes up with brackets and so you can sort of cue with a small thing you know like, like a parenthetical yeah, yeah parenthetical. it's just a parenthetical it's just a parenthetical there so that's how i utilize my format to try to describe things but um gosh, there's just so many cool ways of being able to, and like Steve says, to storyboard it somehow. And if we could have that kind of graphical format, it'd be really quick to just put it together. And it and, has implications on directing and acting also, because fairly often I'll be, I'll get a line from an actor and then I'll be like, I don't know, the person you're talking to is actually like 30 feet away and across the street. So you're going to have to call out a little bit. He's not standing right next to you. Oh, okay. But uh, yeah. yeah. And outside of a diagram or something, I don't have a good way to actually communicate mm -hmm. that effectively to the sound designer and the actors, like what I'm imagining the scene to look like. This this uh, closes to acting, but I'll, I remember a story that uh, 
Jerry Robbins told me about doing Powder River. And the first time he did Powder River, he had the actors come in and they were reading their lines. It's a Western on horseback. He recorded it all, or did post-production quickly all together, had them come back the next day and they went, oh, we don't sound like we're on horseback at all. He's, yes, <laughs> exactly. So then they had to, you know, they had to get into their head. So sometimes you almost have to sort of have a, you know, a faux recording just so that they can, they can clear clear in their head how different that would be depending upon the scene and the setting that they're in in that way. It makes sense? That sort of brings us to the idea of narrative and perspective. I mean, we talked about the focus of the of the scene, but um, is there is there a connection to narrative and perspective? Tony's already spoken to the idea that he has a, a strong first-person narrative, and, and I think genre flies into that a little bit too. Mm -hmm. The detective genre has a long tradition of first-person narratives. Do, do, do you find that narrative, uh, strong narrative, uh, less strong narrative, what would you prefer? You mean you're talking about narration or narrative? Um, good question. Uh, narration bumps into narrative, I guess, but the narrative is the story. We're talking narration in that respect. Like, so if you're talking, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the perspective of first person versus third person and how narration is often utilized in, in a first person story more often than not. Do you, do you prefer that to tell your stories in audio drama or not? I guess. We'll start. Neil, Neil mentioned this. So, what do you do, Neil, when when you do when you do the audio drama? Do you have a strong narrator 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 as a story and a strong narration going on? Uh, when when we do the adaptations, we never use a narrator. Okay. You know, other than you know whoever just announces the story in the credits. You know, there, there's never a narrator. It's all why? Done. It's, well, why, uh, why do you make that choice? Because I think it takes the audience out of the immediacy of the characters and the story itself. And this is the personal choice. I've heard stories with narration that work great. And, yep. you know, when we do comedic stuff, we often use narration and subvert the narration, like the narrator will interact with the characters, you know, in a funny kind of way. But for us, I think the challenge is, like, how do we convey the entire story, you know, without the audience having a crutch of narration? You know, without us having the crutch of narration, how can we do it? And that's a good challenge, and we really like that. So cool. we've made a conscious choice not to use narration. Okay. So th I think this is good because we have two people who are strong proponents of non-narration or little narration and two, and two people who have used narration strongly and, and believe that. So that's good. Let's go back, go to Steve, because I, I know you're, you have a strong feeling about using as little narration as possible for the same reason. Is that true? Uh, for, yeah, similar to what Neil had said. Um, I did, I feel like narration is overused as a crutch and, uh, it's not, it changes, it's going to alter the entire tone of your show and how things sound. Um, in my case, I have a, a slick, modern sounding spy show. So to have it start with sit right back children and let me tell you a tale of these, you know, young spy kids going on an adventure like that would that's not my show so i i decided from the beginning that specifically i wasn't going to use narration in the particular show that i'm making particularly because of the style i was going for it didn't really lend itself to narration mm -hmm. however uh it is important to convey clearly to the audience what's happening which obviously having a narrator tell them is a whole lot easier 
and you have to figure out how to how to format and, and, and set up the scenes in a way that are is comprehensible even in the absence of the narrator. Mm -hmm. in, in my case, it's well, I tend to tend to try to convey information first through sound effects if possible, secondarily <laughs> through dialogue and then narration or a narrational device third in that order. That's not a hard and fast rule because I do use narration in certain instances in the show, but that would be typically like after something has happened and a character is relating what happened to somebody else who wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And we kind of could go back into a flashback where that character's kind of doing a voiceover and you're hearing what happened at the same time. There's, there's, there's plenty of different things uh, you could do with the, the time, time shifting. So I, I wouldn't say I'm anti-narrator but I feel like narration is way too often used in circumstances when it doesn't necessarily have to be. Fair enough. Tony, you, you were the one who was using uh, strong narration for Harry Strange. I have to go and listen to some of the new stuff you have coming out still. I'm looking forward to it. I always, you know, how many things I have to listen to all at once. It's never about not wanting to hear your stuff. You know that. Sure. So tell no, me I understand. about narration. So, I, so for Harry Strange, to me, narration was like, it wouldn't have been Harry Strange without narration, right? Because so much of Harry we learned about through the narration. Although what I even noticed is as I progressed into season two and season three, the narration dropped a little bit. I mean, we didn't have quite as much and other characters got to narrate as well. Um, Lady Sherlock, I have Watson narrating because that was, that's the, the conceit of Sherlock, right? Is it there was a narrator in there. But again, it's very minimal narration. A new project I have, the narrator is going to essentially be my camera, right? So if I can't show it through video, or video, if I can't show it through audio, if dialogue sounds stupid describing it, the narrator is going to step in and basically be the camera who shows what's mm -hmm. happening there, right? Um, I've heard pretty effective narration. Um, well... I've, I mean, I've, I've heard, I like, I don't mind narration. I don't think it's terrible. I think that, um, oh, and it just completely escaped me. Uh, Christoph um, Leviathan Chronicles did, I thought a fantastic job with narration. And I only listened to season one because um, it was such a gap, but in season one, I thought they did, <clears throat> he did a great job with that. And then a couple of the one-offs and that's kind of the narration that this new project is going to have. The drawbacks of narration, like with Harry was, well, if the guy's telling the story, he can't die. So I solved that by making him immortal. So we know he's not going to die. So no surprises there. Um, but I didn't want that to happen. Like in this next project that I'm, I'm, I'm going to be releasing soon is I don't want any of the characters, you know, the audience going, oh, well, this guy can't die because he's telling me the story. That's why I have a narrator who's going to tell it. Um, and it'll be very third person. I don't think the narrator is ever going to talk like directly to the audience, you know, it's not going to be a, a second person kind of narration. It'll be, it'll be, you know, the, you know, the, the, the RX seven, whatever race down the road, um, because I can play a sports car sound effect, but you, I, you know, there's a difference between a Corvette and a souped up Acura, right? So the two different vehicles in your head. So that's kind of what the narrator is going to do is, is the last, you know, I can't tell it with the sound effect effectively, my narrator's going to do that job. Thank you. Yeah. I think also that the genre 
mystery is there to design to drop hints about various different things yeah. and so many of those could be visual but so you gotta you gotta pick people to picture what's going on so that they can pick up the answers as they go along mm -hmm. too bob talk to me about narration and, and and using a narrator yeah yeah i'll stand up for it <laughs> um, but first, I'll say nothing. Nothing anybody said struck me as as unreasonable or fighting words or anything. So <laughs> I'm not. It's not a disagreement. But I will. What I will say is, uh, first, I said this in the in the earlier panel. I'm a big proponent of not taking any tools out of your toolbox. We're already limited in our art form. We already only have so many things. Um, and I'm reminded of the. I, I, I think it was a Vonnegut quote where he said, like, you only have three semicolons in your life, use them carefully. And that's hilarious, but it's crazy, right? Why would you take that off the table? As a writer, you only have so much punctuation. Why would you not at least have it available? So here's here's what I would say. Um, I, I totally hear you guys like overused crutch, all that kind of stuff, but I don't think you're describing narration. I think you're describing bad narration. Any element can be good, can be bad. Um, and, and, you know, is your narration a third person omniscient kind of narration or is it a character in the story? And I'll, right. I'll name check again, one of my favorite old time radio shows, Quiet Please, all written around monologues that have characters sort of coming and going throughout. And they're wonderful, rich, fantastic stories. I think of immediately, I think of the opening uh, sentences of the Telltale Heart, where the narrator says, you may think I'm crazy, but listen to me while I tell you how sane I am. <laughs> I killed a guy, I chopped him up, I put him under the floorboards, you know, and what a what a wonderful uh, glimpse into his mind. So I think if your story dictates that you need more of this internal kind of stuff, you know, don't think of narration as some kind of off limits thing that can be a, a great tool, especially in audio drama where I think you've got that closeness, you can get really nice and close to the microphone, you can hear the richness of somebody's voice, you can get you can get a lot of character from someone talking directly to you. So that's my pitch for narration. I think you're absolutely right. I think oh, yeah. everybody here is right for those things. Uh, one of the things that just always keep in mind if you're new at this, and everybody I know who's, who's in the panel understands this, but the moment you start having a narrator tell a story, what has happened has already happened it's it's in the past the moment when you remove all kinds of narration you you start the opportunity of it being an 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 instant thing this is happening right before your eyes you are witnessing what's going on so it is it is a sense of immersiveness that steve used beforehand in mm -hmm. in his discussion and that's neither right or wrong it's just how your story is being told and you know how how much do you want your characters to be immersed in the moment as opposed to how much do you want to tell a story and i think there's there's value in all of those things and i do like the idea of having a multiple use toolbox for it those can be tricky setting setting the scene or circumstance up particularly if it's something complex um it audio doesn't really do that well in my experience um telling what's happening as it's happening if suddenly there's a, a bunch of aliens that bust in the door and start taking hostages and shooting everybody well unless you set that scene up beforehand maybe by showing the aliens outside the door getting ready to bust in and talking about what they're about to do, or you're retrospectively looking back on it, maybe a survivor is telling the story of what already happened when they came in. 
then it's it's very easy for that to just turn into like bang blah 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 ah! and then the <laughs> listener's like what what the like hell's going, going on, on but they don't know what it is specifically so i do a lot of i do a lot of setting up beforehand and also looking back after it but not so much during unless it's something common and and, and obvious that everybody knows like what a blender sounds like or something something would be very familiar for people but it, it, it can be really difficult making things clear because uh, confusion is one of the last things you want <laughs> yes and uh, and that's one of the few clear. arguments i had with bill hallwig very few and they weren't arguments they were discussions where i i would argue i don't think that science fiction and fantasy specifically like future worlds and stuff like that really exist very easily without some kind of narrator or narration or something to describe those worlds because you have to have a sense of familiarity in audio drama that's what that's what builds this kind of reality for people to be able to listen to the story like you said steve if you've lost people because you just thrown a bunch of sound effects at that are really exciting that then you've lost them they don't want to hear anymore they, they need to follow along with everything that goes along well, any, good, any, oh, sorry. i was just gonna ask any last points on that and go ahead yeah, and yeah here's a good example like um I don't know if anybody's ever heard the Fantastic Four radio show from the 60s with, with Bill Murray, of all people, in it. It's pretty good. It's a pretty good listen. But the thing is, if you've never seen the comic, you absolutely could not follow what is going on in that in that story. Like, you would have no sense of what the characters look like. You would have no sense of what the sound effects are supposed to be indicating. So I think people, you know, especially, I, I know a lot of people want to write superhero stories for audio, but it's extremely difficult like unless you're very careful to set up what sound effects correspond to which actions of the characters or which powers it takes it takes a far better writer than me to make that work yeah absolutely and just to, to put on to bob's like there's for all the great narration there's some poor ones i was we're doing um noir right now in sonic echo where we look back upon old-time radio stuff with lothar tuppen and jeffrey billard and and one of the problems I have with Lux Radio is they have the host narrate the scene. And then if it's a detective, the afterwards, they do another narration. Like, cut out one of those narrators. Right, pick one. Talk about mm -hmm. his stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Because it, it just throws you out one way or another. So, But these are all these are all things you have to think about when you're writing and, and putting together a good script. It sounds like it's just, well, I'll just put down the story. But one of the first <laughs> things you have to think about is, how do I tell the story in sound? And can it be told in sound? Not everything can. And you may have a great uh, space romance between two mimes, but I don't think it's going to make for a great audio story. <laughs> <laughs> One tip, though, that, that will help is uh, always have somebody in the scene that can't see what's going on. In my show, for example, the kids are generally talking on these little earbud communicators to a communications officer who isn't there. And can't see what's happening so sometimes the kids actually have to tell her what they're doing and at the same time telling the audience great i i'm going to turn because we're running out of time quickly this has been a fantastic conversation but we're into the q a section if that's all right with folks and i see some comments already from people and so philip robotham who's come in uh and this is actually craig craig robotham uh probably using somebody else's thing or maybe it's another name he he points out some <laughs> A sound is self-identifying. Other sounds are ambiguous. How do you indicate the sound requirements in your script, and how do you communicate their meaning to the audience? Anyone want to field that? 
Sure. Uh, this is something I'm, we're working on this afternoon and tomorrow in our workshop. We're talking about uh, how to get exposition into uh, into scenes. And one of the things we talk about the idea of, of uh, micro for macro. So what you do is if you want to set a scene somewhere, you take the most identifiable sound that everybody would, you know, most people would identify with that location. So for example, an EKG monitor, that's hospital right away, right? You don't need anything else to convey hospital. You know, so yeah. I, I think it's good to, to sort of think about like, what are those really ubiquitous sounds that people already know? And use as many or as specific ones as you can find. My two favorites are crickets and windshield wipers. <laughs> yeah. Whenever I have windshield wipers, I know it's raining outside. I'm in a car. Whenever it's crickets, I know it's a summer evening, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. But it works. It, it totally works. Right? It works for those things. Anyone else on that? So, um, yeah. So, like, in Lady Sherlock, my Watson is, is an automaton. So he is loaded with weaponry and such. And um, the first time we played his weapon charging, he had to narrate, you know, I charged my weapon, mm -hmm. um, my we or my, whatever the line was. It was something like just kind of th a throwaway line that he said. Then for the rest of the series, or the rest of that episode anyway, whenever his weapon charged, we didn't have to do a callback to it, right? Because he defined the sound for us. And now we know. And I think in another episode, I Sherlock told him to, you know, hey, you better arm yourself. And we played the sound. So that sound now is always going to be associated with his weapon charging. So we did we did define it the first time that the audience heard it. And then we just do callbacks to it. Nice. I like that. That's a great style. Anyone else have a, a thought to that? Okay, we'll move on. Aline Hoskins. Uh, thank you back to Aline. That's great. From... Um, audio epics if you remember they did some great stuff including witch hunter chronicles that sounds awesome jack i've used celtics and scribend i don't know them but i've returned to word as well because i couldn't find what you just described so i'm assuming she's talking about the visual aspects for those reasons david blue says an audio play i've written tr tries something tricky that the narrator has his own agenda a point of view different from all from that of the story itself or presumably the audience the narrator represents a specific producing organization complete with faux commercials. What is your reaction to this idea? So this sounds like a, a bit of a mix of the unreliable narrator kind of situation idea. What do you think of that? I love it. <laughs> Go for it, dude. That, that is fantastic. And especially if there's that moment where you're like, well, this is the narrator. I trust this person. And then you start going, wait a minute. No. That's um, not what I just heard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's so perfect. I had a group of friends in college and we'd write stupid songs together and we wrote a doo-wop song where all the backup singers would contradict the lead melody and they got into an argument over the course of the song. So that kind of <laughs> stuff is really funny and delightful. Yeah. Uh, yeah the television show, Mr. Robot, is sure. fantastic for that too. Sorry, Steve, what did you say? Oh, sorry to talk over you there. Uh, I just said it's, it, it can be a, a big advantage in comedy. Uh, one of the episodes that I've written has will be coming out in season two uh the episode title is he said she said and the uh it's a boy and a girl pair of kid spies who go out on this mission but the entire episode takes place after the mission's already failed and the whole story is them in the office talking to their boss about what happened and how did it go wrong except the boy has a totally different 
version of what happened than the girl does. And they're taking turns telling bits of the story. But when the boy's telling the story, the girl is like totally weak and wimpy and, and, and wants to <laughs> run away. When the girl's telling the story, the boy is totally stupid and messing everything up. And it's funny that you, we never actually find out what really happened. That's so, I mean, it was an X-Files episode. It <laughs> was perfect for that. Yeah. Michael Wilhelm from The Temp, if a uh, show asks, do you record your shows mono or stereo? But that's a little more on the recording side of things. But still, do you think about that when you're writing? Because that uh, requires we, panning we, if you're doing we, stereo. Yeah, right? so, you, so you record, I would record dialogue in mono and mix it and like, you know, put it in the scene with other bits in stereo or panning or binaural cool. sound. I'm kind of experimenting with some binaural stuff now and it's been pretty interesting. Right. So, cool. The only thing that's interesting. Any field recording? Sorry. Has anyone done a uh, stories field recording? I'm just recalling what Bob was saying about rehearsing ahead of time, and I, I imagine that's probably similar. Like, mm -hmm. yeah, you don't have to like if you re it takes place in an airport, you record in an airport, mm. but then you have to make sure that you're only recording the sounds that you want to record. Right. And, yeah. That's the Fred Greenwald's uh, approach, right? Fred, Final Room Productions does a lot yeah. of, sort of in-place recording mm -hmm. of that way. That takes care of all of your surrounding, but again, you have to limit that sound issues, right? So Well, right. there's, a, there's a, another interesting way to record in studio that I heard about uh, the old uh, Sherlock Holmes with... Uh, that uh, was produced by BBC. Castle Rathbone and... No, and... no, no, the more recent one with... Um, Oh, right. Clive, somebody? Yeah. Anyway, so what they did was they built, uh, like they had the actors physically move around, like built a little set and mic'd it so the actors could move around the set to get all the proper, like rather than do it in post, they have the actors far from the mic, you know, as coming into a scene. And it was really interesting. And they used some props and, and, and stuff like that. So you could do that too. You could do that in the studio. Nice. Or, cool. or you could also have uh, a mic where, you know, the actors are, are around it and everybody's recording into the same mic. And that's also really interesting to do. And that's an old radio style thing. Nice. Um, back to Craig Robethon. By the way, Craig is a phenomenal analyst of good writing in audio drama. If you get a chance, if you go to audio script writers in our Facebook, you can read through reams of stuff that he's done or go to his website weirdworldstudios.com he's one of the keenest understanding uh people who understand how to write audio drama i've ever yeah, his, his stuff's his stuff's terrific yeah it's just it's stuff so he says i'm also keen to hear from the panelists about their process and writing habits so we do have a little bit of time tell us about your process and writing habits we'll run through and start with bob yeah, so I, I try to write in the mornings. I try to get up early before work and put at least an hour aside to write. That's that's when I'm sharpest, um, and that's just what works for me. I don't always do it. Sometimes I hit the snooze alarm, but I prefer that. Um, I do think, you know, it'd be interesting to hear uh, along those same, those same lines, answering that same question from everyone, like when, when you research, when do you get into all that kind of stuff? Because Because for me, I find that, I tend to want to at least start and then I'll sort of run into those roadblocks and go, okay, let me take a step back and then go do some research for a few weeks and then come back to this. But I, I 
I like to at least get going, get some dialogue down, get a flavor going. So I know what to research. Um, so I think that that's sketch. I would say mornings I'm either researching or I am getting something down on paper. Cool. Neil. Uh, depends just because we, you know, we do live shows. So once the show is booked, like we set the date before we even start working on the show. So we give ourselves a pretty specific deadline. Wow. Uh, it's, it's usually three, it's usually three weeks from, start of the process to a live stage show, a 90 minute show. Um, that doesn't mean all the writing happens then because you know, I'm all constantly writing little bits and pieces, but once that deadline is set, then I really kick into high gear and sort of would work say two, two to five hours a day on it until it's ready. Fantastic, Tony. So um, I generally write everything out by hand, um, even the scripts. Um, because that way they can suck and nobody's ever going to see it. And I don't care um, because I, it, I feel like when I go to the, when I go to the software app, I'm far more conscious of what I'm writing. So I like banging it out um, on paper first. Um, like Bob, I do my research just in time, right? So, Hey, I need to know, you know, why this, you know, I need to know a disease that will cause someone to, you know, bleed profusely from their mouth, that is rather obscure. So then, you know, I spend days down that rabbit hole, um, you know, looking for that. Um, so that's again, why it's on paper because maybe I don't like the disease I find. And so I just have to scrap that and start from something else, but I never throw anything away. So I always have stuff that I've at least started to write there. And then after that, I go to the application and, you know, go through 25 different drafts of that. Do you find that slows your brain down to, to write longhand to start? Uh -huh. Does, that, does yes. that help? Does it help? It does. It does. It does a lot. I also, because I, I'm a, I don't write, I have to write slowly in order to be able to read it a week later. So that, that slows me down. But then that also gives me an opportunity like, oh God, you know what would be really funny? And I wouldn't have thought of that if I was, you know, I may not have thought of that if it was already on, you know, in the app and almost in stone then. That so sort I carry of notebooks everywhere. Tony, What's that? Because the way I the way I write that floors me that you do that longhand. That, that's amazing. And I think Michael this morning was talking about using a typewriter. I I, wow. I just have gaps. I just you know sure. I'll just put something happens here and then move on. So just to think that you would you know need to have every step before you. Oh, it's not linear. No, I don't write. I don't it's write linearly. Right. No, no, not okay. at all. I mean, I'll okay. just write you know TK and and move on to the next line. You know, or wouldn't this be a cool, you know, this is a cool battle here, you know, let, let these guys have a knife fight and then figure out how I'm getting to that knife. <laughs> Still, I admire the depth of concentration it takes to do that. I, I, I have a very funny story, which I shouldn't tell. So we'll move on to Steve. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. So how you, that, then you're not how are you going to do that? That's My students hate it too. And I go, well, I'll get back to it later on. And it keeps them engaged. Okay, so I won't do it to you guys. But so I there's a, there's a, a famous writer that I won't tell, talk about. And they were doing a particular script that was sent into them about a particular sword fight. And the sword fight was written, um, described in ting, 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 oh, for like a page God. and a half. Oh, so the, that was just the sound effect that of the sword fight going back and forth was a page and a half of the word ting over on and stuff like that. 
I, I think that does nothing. Don't ever do that. You know, keep it very concise, but try to be descriptive in a visual waves. But sorry, it's a great story and it's true, but it's painful to even think that that came in as a script. Steve, talk about your uh, process, please. Yeah. Just to add on to what you were just saying, like, uh, don't put, don't put, like, in your description, bazat or something. He drops to the ground. Like, what the hell is bazat mean? Like, what made this? describe what's making the sound, not the sound itself. <laughs> um, but th- anyway, um, yeah, I'm a pretty thorough plotter. Um, kind of like what Tony said, though. I don't necessarily do it. Uh, sequentially I'm jumping all over the place from the very earliest stages to basic ideas and then it just kind of gradually grows and expands and evolves and like this is an idea for like a scene that I wrote you know jot down I I try not to get stuck in any particular format because I don't want to jinx myself with thinking well I don't have my index card so I can't I'll write on a napkin I'll write on anything if there's a computer there I'll use a computer there's crayons, I'll use crayons. It doesn't particularly matter. It's just a way to track the the the, the thought. But as as Bob was saying, I, I tend to do also my best hard writing in the morning, meaning when you really have to visualize what's happening in a scene and kind of go through all of the beats and paces of that. It requires some focus and concentration. It's, you know, not all parts of writing are, are as difficult as that. But to me, that's the, the most challenging part is really getting in, getting into that scene and kind of playing that movie inside of your head and trying to track what you're seeing on the paper. Um, <clears throat> and then, you know, usually I save later in the day or in the evenings for things that aren't quite as mentally taxing, such as research or brainstorming a general idea or, oh, I, I just this next episode needs to take place in Greenland. What the heck's in Greenland? And then, you know, watch a few videos about Greenland. It's all basically falls into the category of writing, although it's not necessarily writing a script. Uh, By the time I get to the scripting stage, I'm already pretty much 90, 95% done. For example, like that is an outline for just one scene. As you can see, I get like... I've already writing bits of dialogue in there, but it's, it's hardly even an outline at that point. It's almost a script, but it is, it has evolved from just like a few words to something more in depth to something even more in depth. So by the time I actually writing the dialogue, that's pretty much all I'm thinking about is how they're wording things. I'm not, I'm, I know exactly what the purpose of the scene is, who's going to be in it, what's going to happen, where it's going. And we're just figuring out now the, the, the dialogue that they're saying. So I try to take it, I, I, I couldn't be a, a, what do they call it? A pantser where you're just kind of making all this stuff on the fly. Like that's too many things for me to think about all at once. I'd rather just think about the big things first and just kind of go, what, deductively from there. So by the time I get to the script, I'm really only thinking about uh, lines of dialogue and not much else. But Excellent. I know when, when I write, I um. I have to structure out the scenes and I'm always like Tony, I, I, or I think it was Tony or somebody was saying in previous thing, maybe it was Lothar. I forget. Somebody's, uh, you, I start off with something, the setup and I have the ending in my head about what's going on. So uh, that can change and the scenes can change as I go along because I'm learning stuff about the characters as well. There's a, there's a weird thing that happens when I'm writing. And I, I think a lot of writers feel this, that it's sort of, 
you, you're watching it as much as anybody else in some cases. Like, it's just right. unfolding before your eyes and like, oh, and then this happens. Oh, and then this happens. And sometimes it occurs when you're thinking of the story itself and the plot points pop into place. That happened to me just the other day with a new idea. Um, but what I find when it comes to my writing, sadly, I, my Clark Kent job is is I'm a I'm a teacher, and so uh, you know that takes up most of my time on a regular basis. Finding, carving out those niche times to to write every day is very difficult for me. So I try to write in in larger chunks when I can, um, often on the weekends or something. And usually for me, and maybe you guys can speak to this as well. I will start back five or six pages and edit and get myself in the flow mm -hmm. of something. And I'll find that the earlier part of my play is far better edited by the, than the latter part of my play by the time I give it to somebody else for that reason. There are some people that are nodding. Does somebody want to speak to that as well? I see. Well, I saw you nod the most at first there. So. Yeah, but I find that helpful too. Uh, I, I have a hard time starting cold at the beginning of a scene. So usually I'll try to end the day in the middle of the scene. That way it's already partially written. I'm just continuing what I already started the day before. It's uh, you feel like you get a running start at it. Like you said, I'll, I'll tend to overlap and go back through and kind of refine and revise a few pages of already written stuff and then just keep it up, keep it going. To me, that's much easier than just starting with, uh oh, now we're at a new episode or now we're at a new major juncture in the story that I haven't written yet. You're staring at that blank page like, ah. <laughs> Neil, you, you were about to say something. Yeah. One of the, one of the things I do is I try to get, if, like I try to get a first draft done as quickly as possible. I think that's what works for me. I'm more of a pantser. So I will kind of just, you know, write a complete first draft and then I'll go back and I'll tweak it a little bit. And then once I'm happy with it, I do this thing that's probably totally unique to me, but I find it's really helpful. So I'll do a word count and I'll say, okay, I've got to get it down to 80% of that word count. I've got to lose 20% of the script. And I'll just start chopping single words, uh, lengthy descriptions. And by the time I get down to 80%, it's usually a, a hell of a lot better than it was at the 100%. And I do that for almost every single script that I write. That's a nice idea. I like that. Tony, what about you? So um, I'll generally, um, after... Okay, we're assuming I'm on the computer at this point. So I will generally write it straight through, um, not making any changes until it, the first mm -hmm. episode or the, the episode I'm working on is finished. Um, and then I'll go back and I, I'm not quite as militant as 20%, but you know, I will try to start reducing the word count. Mm -hmm. um, if I need a, if I realize the character needed a brother um, at some point while I'm writing the first draft, I'll just make a note, add brother and then go back in and, and add the brother in. Since I generally work on, you know, a 16 episode arc, um, by the time I'm at episode eight, there's probably 10 or 12 other things I need to put back into episode one. So it looks like I'm a genius, um, but I actually didn't think of them until way later in the process. Um, so so that's kind of the, the thing. So really episode one isn't finished until episode 16 is finished or okay. six or eight or whatever the, mm -hmm. whatever the season length is. Cool. Yeah, like putting putting one line of dialogue at the beginning after you know the whole thing. Right. Yeah. People people think like, how the hell did he set that up? How did he plan that out? So he's a genius. I, I, I know, and it's like, nope, <laughs> nope, made it up, made it up at the yeah. end. But uh, I actually had one actor say to me, um, I think it was like episode six, and he was like, "Man, I'm so glad I'm doing this for a reason because I thought you just had me out there doing like evil stuff for no apparent reason." I was like, 
I didn't tell him, but it was like, well, until episode six, I didn't really know what your reason was. So yeah, you were just out there being evil. Bob, what about you? I feel like in some ways I'm I'm kind of the opposite. I, I feel like when I'm writing, I just sort of go where I know what to do, you know, and so I bounce around. Um, and I try to I try to do that within a single episode, right? I try not to say, well, I've got 10 episodes, I'll just write little pieces of each. But I may, I won't necessarily start at the beginning. If I know at the end, well, they're going to have to get to the fireworks factory, I might start writing that scene and then go do some research and then go, okay, well, I have to get there in a van. How do they get the van? When does that come in and go back? Um, Now, I do try to do some of that kind of outline stuff that Steve was showing. I try to at least have a basic idea, you know, A to B. Um, But then, like you say, Jack, sometimes the characters, the story, they surprise you. Right. And they tell you to go somewhere else. And you so you want to be open to that kind of stuff, too. So all this feels like to me like a give and take. You know, sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, where you're going. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you got to pay attention. Um, And I guess the only way to to do all this is to do it and just keep doing it. Right. Just keep reading it. Every time you read it, something else sticks out to you that needs to be trimmed down or shaved off or corrected. And just do that until you can't find any problems anymore. There's, there's so many questions I still have, and we're almost out of time. I'm so upset right now because I'm having so much fun. Like, I, one of the things I wanted to ask, maybe you can rip right around. Do you have a specific page count? Do you have a specific time that you want your shows, especially if it's a series? Do you want them to follow a specific time frame? Because with podcasting, it can be five minutes, it can be 35 minutes. But sometimes you still want to say... No, I want all these shows to be 15 minutes long or 25 minutes long or commuter's length or whatever that is. Yeah. Anyone want to jump into that quickly? <clears throat> no, I, I have shoot a, for 20 I have minutes. 25 minutes. I, I, I stink. It's done when it's done, but I know that I'm <laughs> undisciplined when it comes to, yeah, we got to hit 25 pages. It's, it's never 20. I can't say anything in 25 pages. I need at least 50 <laughs> for an episode. So we ended up. Uh, so it's a two-parter. Yeah, ended up making a lot of two-part episodes uh, mm. for the second season, which run around fifty to sixty pages. And so I, I just find it so difficult to get any real you know, characterization in there mm. in such a short space, in a way that's satisfying. And you're, you know, in the context of just telling the nuts and bolts of what happens in any given episode, or in this case, each episode would be one mission that the kids go on. Like, it takes me like fifteen pages just to explain where they're going, what they're supposed to be doing. And that, never mind, like their relationship and all that. So, yeah, admittedly, this is not my strong point. I wish I could mm. be, uh, I don't know if I could write for television. I didn't like ad breaks, like every two pages or whatever. <laughs> like, yeah, gotta be tough. Yeah. Tony. So, I, I, in the beginning with Harry, I was very undisciplined. So, we went, we were all over the board. Most episodes hit 30 minutes. The season finales were usually an hour and a half because. Um, like Steve, I just didn't feel like I had told enough of the story to make this payoff worth it. So I did a lot of it there. Um, now, though, um, having listened to a lot of horror podcasts, I'm really the, this next project I'm shooting for about 25 minutes per episode. Um, but I don't care. Like what I'm looking for is that, you know, if I have to tell the characterization of this guy over three episodes, then that's it. Um, but these are all going to be, you know, the, the stories are probably going to be two or three episodes long. So in my head, it's an hour and a half, but the episodes are going to be cut down to 25 minutes. So however that works out. Good. Neil. Uh, well, our live shows are generally two, 
45 minute halves, uh, but the structure of that can change. Like we've done one where the adaptation took up the whole 45 minutes of the second half. Uh, we've done short stuff, long stuff. So it, it never looks the same twice, but our when we write a show, it's 90 minutes. Okay, cool. And Bob, it's all over the place with you guys, isn't it? <laughs> it's all of the above, man. But that, you know what? That's, the wonderful thing about podcasting is it can be any length. The terrifying thing about podcasting is it can be any length. So you've got to find your own discipline in there somewhere. Thank you so much. And just the ending, I guess, is keep in mind, too, if you want to put this stuff on public radio or university radio or something like that, there are there are constraints for that as well to keep that in mind and some of that happens too thank you so much we are out of time thank you everybody for watching thank you neil jones thank you tony sarekia thank you bob arnold and thank you steve schneider for coming to this and i know neil's uh workshop is up next i think it starts at 4 30. There's still, a, there's still a few slots left for today and uh, wonderful three and or four left for tomorrow so. that's right and then we're back here uh with our own uh talking about teamwork with jeff billard uh it, as our moderator and a bunch of interesting stuff so some of the stuff we talked about today we're going to get more detail in the next session with teamwork this has been so much fun and and thank you again everyone great to see you all and take care see you guys Enjoyed it so much. Thanks, guys. A lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye now. Now, you seem to me to be a connoisseur of the best of radio drama. In which case, make sure you're subscribed to the Monday Matinee Feed. There we have our weekly series of dramatic, theatrical, classic, eclectic, and live radio drama. So, yeah. Either the main Mutual Audio Network feed for all types and genres of audio drama, or the Monday Matinee. And we'll see you there. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.